0: Today's episode of Women with Balls is sponsored by Google. Parents want their children to be more safe and confident explorers of the digital world, but sometimes it can be tricky to find the balance. So Google created Be Internet Legends. It's a free learning program that teaches children online safety skills through fun, PSHE-accredited resources for teachers, and a fun online game for families too. In partnership with ParentZone, be Internet Legends has reached over 70% of UK primary schools with its free toolkits and school assemblies. To find out more and see how Google Resources can help your school, search
1: B Internet Legends. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, speak to today's trailblazers. My guest today was born in the Midlands, but has spent much of her life looking eastwards. At college, a teacher had learned Russian in the military, so she took it up on the grounds that it sounded exotic. It paid off. She went on to study Russian and French at Fitzwilliam College, Cambridge, and went to the country as part of her year abroad, at a time when the Soviet Union was falling apart. On that trip, she flew to Uzbekistan for a dollar, but then got stuck there as nobody knew how to operate independent airlines. After brief stints as a bartender at a pub frequented by the St. Petersburg Mafia, she started in journalism with an internship at Bloomberg TV. She later joined the BBC's Russian service before moving to BBC News and working in Moscow, Istanbul, Madrid and Havana. Soon after the revolution in Kiev in 2014, she moved back to Russia and became the BBC's Moscow correspondent. This August, she was expelled from Russia by the Kremlin, with her rights to report of the country revoked permanently. Speaking to the Today programme, she said, Many people I've interviewed in the past have now left Russia for safety. I never thought for a moment that I'd be joining them on the outside. I'm going with the labels anti-Russian and security threat ringing in my ears. My guest today is Sarah Rainsford. Now, Sarah, to begin this podcast, we clearly want to talk about your career, as I mentioned in the introduction, but we like to start by looking at your early life, your childhood. A question we ask everyone on this podcast, uh, no matter what they do, is would you describe your childhood as a happy one?
0: Yeah, I think so. Pretty happy, pretty stable, pretty normal, I guess. Uh, I come from the Midlands, Worcestershire. We lived in a village, but it was more like a housing estate somewhere between Worcester and Pershaw. But yeah, lots of happy memories of running around the field at the end of the road with our dog. Lots of holidays in France. We used to go camping in France a lot in the summers, um, which I guess is where my interest I suppose in French and in travel as well began so um, yeah.
1: And as for your interest in Russian I mentioned it briefly in the introduction but you almost it seems to me from reading things you came to Russian a little bit by chance through a teacher.
0: Yeah definitely I mean I was really into languages I, I liked languages a lot I liked kind of I suppose adopting a new character or persona when you speak a different language so it was it was always fun and and something I enjoyed. And then when I was at Sixth Form College in Worcester, it just so happened that there was a teacher there who offered Russian, a man called Mr. Criddle. And he had studied Russian in the military, as far as I remember. I don't think I asked him many questions in those days. But he offered it as an A-level, and it seemed just different. I, mean, I, kind of, I think I liked to be different. And, and studying Russian sounded unusual, a little bit exotic. I didn't really know much about Russia at the time. And he had this really kind of quite methodical way of teaching Russian. So for the first year, we couldn't even string a sentence together, but he'd hold up these flashcards that he'd made himself at the front of the room, and we'd conjugate verbs and and, and nouns and and this ridiculously complicated Russian language. We we were taught it in a very militaristic, really, kind of way. But it worked. In the end, eventually, after a couple of years, we did the A-level, and I went on to study Russian at university and to travel around Russia. And, you know, it obviously has been something that has stayed with me my my entire life. So whilst it was a fairly dull way to learn the language, I have a huge amount to thank Mr Criddle for.
1: And did you know much about Russia at the time? What I find really interesting about your career is obviously you've been covering a big period of change since you first started learning Russian. Was it something on your radar for your family or anything like that? No, no, not at all. And in fact, it it was just that kind of
0: chance experience at sixth form when as part of this learning of, of Russian, a, a Russian girl came to stay in Worcester as well. And this was part of an exchange. So eventually I would go and spend six months in Moscow. But Natasha came to Worcester and she lived with families in Worcester for a month. And she, she rotated between four families. But in the end, she came back to me for a second week because we, we really hit it off, basically. And and I just remember this kind of, I'm going to say exotic again, although it's a, it's a, an odd word, but this exotic creature from then the Soviet Union who who landed in the middle of winter at Worcester Shrop Hill Station in this bright red woolen overcoat. It was like a kind of cape, really. And uh, she sort of had these big boots and this, this bright red cape. And, and she, she came to our little kind of, you know, brick house on a housing estate. And uh, and she lived with us for a week. And and she was just so different. and And she began to teach me Russian. I mean, I was learning it, obviously, already. But she began to try to talk to me in Russian, which I was rubbish at in those days. And then eventually I would go back and try to experience her life in Moscow. And I spent six months there living in a hostel, a student hostel. But she became a very kind of key figure in my whole relationship with Russia and, and someone who I've been really close to ever since then. But, you know, her life in Moscow was so far apart from, from my life in, in Drake's and that it was, it was, I think that's why I kind of got my, my claws into Russia in the first place, why I kind of got hooked on the whole idea of Russia. So she's got a lot, of, a lot to answer for.
1: So with your year abroad, was that before you went to university or was that when you were at university that you went over? Yeah, it was
0: six months before I went to university. I did six months on and off in France in various places working, and then six months from January to June in nineteen ninety-two in Moscow. And that was literally two weeks after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So it was a a crazy place. I mean, it was a place where the shops were empty. So we were a bunch of students, I think there were six of us there. And and you know, there was nothing in the shops. there were queues for nothing. As far as we could tell, there was no loo paper. You know we had to buy books if there were any books to use in the toilet, or if we were in a hotel, we'd sort of nip into the posh hotels and and steal the loo roll <laughs> and take it back to our to our hostels, sort of march past speaking loudly in English, so they think we were guests, which clearly we didn't look like. And then it was, you know, this kind of crazy, massive country that we could we could travel around because you mentioned in the introduction, you know, we flew to Uzbekistan for a dollar, but then we just couldn't get back because uh, nobody could figure out how to operate an independent airline. Uh, and there was this bunch of students sort of wandering around Uzbekistan uh, having all sorts of actually in those days pretty crazy adventures but but sort of again you know not really speaking that great russian and not really knowing what was going on but it was amazing
1: and at that time what was it like in terms of the reception you got as a group of students from england were people friendly or were people quite busy with the fall of the soviet union
0: everyone was extremely friendly but i do remember one thing which is as students we looked such a mess i remember i had dot martins i had ripped clothes <laughs> massive jumpers and kind of you know The whole thing was grunge and everyone wanted to look terrible. And yet in the Soviet Union, where people had nothing, uh, they really wanted to look good. And I just remember a lot of our relationships were kind of like, you're a vegetarian, you don't eat meat and you look like an absolute state. You know, what are you you doing? And these people who had nothing uh, were sort of looking at us supposedly privileged Westerners and thinking, you know, something is weird in, in capitalism if this is what happens.
1: Now, can you talk to us about the pub you worked in, which I'm fascinated by? Well, it didn't exist when we first came across
0: it, but it was when we were in. That was 1994, 95, and I had supposedly been sent to Russia as my year abroad. It was the third year of my university degree, and it was all about you know immersing yourself in the country and learning the language and coming back to do your exams, and most universities sent their students on these very structured courses they all went to fairly sort of dull provincial towns in russia and, and spent the whole time going to college but cambridge was really kind of free and easy and i told them i was going to go and just sort of oh, no actually i think i did register for a course it was at this yeah the shipbuilding institute in st petersburg i think i went once but basically we stumbled across this bar which was right next to the marinsky theater in the center of st petersburg and um, there were some irish people there who kind of were struggling a little bit and we managed to I guess, persuade them that they needed some translators and some assistance. And we helped them build the bar, I like to think, although I think it was a bit less dramatic than that. So, yeah, we were sort of helping them out translating. And then eventually, once the bar was built, I worked there behind the bar. And that's where I think I learned my best Russian. So Mr. Criddle was brilliant for the grammar, but basically the Irish bar in St. Petersburg is where I really learned Russian.
1: So did the Irish bar eventually prove quite a hit with the locals after your help there?
0: Yeah, they were, they were huge. The Irish were huge in Russia in the early 90s. They had the supermarket, they had a few bars and some of them are still going. In fact, the, the shamrock, as it was, is still going. Yeah, it's a very different beast. I remember in those days, though, you know, people would come in, the, the dancers and the, the opera singers from the Morinsky would pop in after a performance or before even a performance, you know, drop into the bar because it was really classy in those days to go to an Irish bar. There was nothing really... Western in town. And, and this was, you know, this was the new world. This was where you could go and have a pint of Guinness and, you know, an opera singer drinking a pint of Guinness in the, the shamrock. Those were the 1990s. And then, of course, there was the darker side of life because mid-1990s nineties St Petersburg was basically a kind of mafia city. And I do remember there were people who would come in and they'd, they'd have to check their guns in at the entrance or they'd bring them through and some I I do remember at one point there was a pistol on the table in the back room of the bar and you know all sorts of strange deals were done in the back and yeah I let the I let the Russian girls that serve those people in the back room but yeah goodness knows what was going on in those days.
1: Now we're just talking about two trips there so the one before university and one nearing the end of your degree so just to skip back slightly you ended up studying at Cambridge French and Russian. How did you find your time at Cambridge I've read that you felt a little bit as though your friends going to other universities probably having a better time than you definitely
0: yeah I wanted to go to Manchester or Leeds but (laughs) my parents wanted me to go to Cambridge
1: (laughs) I can see where they're coming from
0: (laughs) no I, I mean I nobody I didn't know anyone who'd gone to Oxbridge didn't know anything about it my school didn't really know anything about it I just went to a regular comprehensive Worcester Catholic school at the first time actually I applied twice I applied to King's because I, I didn't know what to do and it looked like a nice building and I didn't get in because they must have probably noticed that I didn't really know what I was talking about at the interview and the second time round when all my friends had already gone to Leeds and Manchester and I'd come back from, from a year in Russia I thought actually Cambridge is probably a really good idea and I tried again and I applied to Fitzwilliam College which was much closer probably a fit to my personality and my background. And I had a brilliant time, but it was hard work. It was really hard work. And yeah, my friends were definitely having much more fun in, in other universities. There's a lot more drinking going on where they were than where I was.
1: And then at what point did you decide you wanted to be a journalist? And was it always the case that you wanted to be a journalist with a foreign affairs speciality? Was it the travelling that came first or the writing for you?
0: Yeah, I'd like to say I was really organised and I was a student journalist. And, you know, I've been writing since the day I was born, but no, definitely not. I fancied it. I always, you know, had this kind of vague ambition that I fancied working as a journalist. And I always thought once I started to get into Russia, you know, I'd watch Ben Brown in Moscow and I'd watch Bridget Kendall in Moscow in the early nineties, the huge events that were going on there, the coup, the storming of the White House, you know, the, the wars in Chechnya and, and I I did want to do that. But I didn't really do anything actively about it. I didn't really know what to do about it. So I kind of stumbled into journalism much later. I ended up spending six months after graduation thinking, you know, I went to Cambridge, I got this degree, but now what? What on earth do I do? And I applied to a million jobs in the Media Guardian and got nothing, of course. And then eventually I got this job at Bloomberg. I got a foot in the door at Bloomberg, which in those days was launching a TV channel. And I was an intern there. They paid the interns in those days a reasonable salary and lots of free food. Yeah, I started sort of photocopying and and doing admin and eventually pushed my way towards becoming a producer and then I left Bloomberg for the BBC and everything was kind of fairly rapid after that.
1: And you moved to Moscow in August 2000. Yes. How did that come about and what were your initial reactions?
0: Again I think I was lucky really because there was somebody who, uh, an editor at the BBC, who saw something in me and decided to give me a chance because really on paper I should never have got the job in in Moscow I mean, I'd been working for a couple of years at the Russian service in London and cutting tape with a razor blade and, you know, splicing tapes together and and commissioning Russian language service correspondents to to do reports for for programmes in Russian. But I knew nothing about news gathering. You know, I I didn't really know about the big world of the big BBC, as they used to call it. So somebody gave me a break and I landed in, in Moscow two days after the Kursk submarine had sunk. So that was August 2000. It sunk on the 12th. The news came out on the 14th. And I think that's the day I landed because I remember I was sort of nervously sort of unpacking and kind of in this far flung Moscow suburb in a, an apartment block there on the sort of 14th floor, I think it was. And, and I could see what was happening in the news. But I was a bit scared to go in the office. I didn't really know what I'd do when I got there because I had zero skills, <laughs> apart from speaking Russian and a couple of years cutting tape with a razor blade. And so I remember someone calling me, the bureau chief calling me and sort of saying, Sarah, are you actually going to come in the office today? And I was kind of like, uh, OK. And then then it was a massive baptism of fire. You know, the Kursk was down, you know, that it was a huge story. We ended up up in Murmansk, Murmansk in the Arctic, covering, you know, that, that awful tale of 118 submariners under the Barents Sea uh, and the massive cover up and the, the kind of awful rescue operation and then eventually it became a salvage operation for the submarine. So I started with a massive story and you know there have been a lot of them ever since.
1: And I suppose just for, for listeners you've been covering Russia for decades and we're going to get to the present day but at that point talk us through it. It's the beginning of Putin's time. What is the atmosphere? What is the political mood in Russia?
0: Yeah it was. My kind of journalistic career with Russia has been very much linked to Putin's time in power. So he had been Prime Minister. And on the 31st of December, Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin had essentially shocked the world standing down and Vladimir Putin became his successor. So I arrived eight months later. That was Putin's Russia. And it was a very different place in those days. It was much more open to the West. You know, there were problems, there were uh, hiccups, there were kind of bumps along the road. But for a Western journalist operating, we used to cooperate and collaborate, for example, with Russian media. I mean, I remember in 2001, after the, you know, the Twin Towers attack, a couple of days later, we were traveling into northern Afghanistan via Tajikistan and a Russian military base down there with a Russian state TV crew. You know, we provided the satellite dish, and they provided the contacts at the Russian military base that got us into Afghanistan. So, you know, those were the days when we all worked together. We were all one big journalistic family. These days, of course, you know, Russian state TV is entirely controlled, and that collaboration is a a thing of the very far distant past. And we've seen big changes in the media environment in Russia, but also in terms of the attitude towards us as the BBC and us as Western journalists there. So. The hostility now from the Russian government is pretty intense. You know, they, they call you partners. They call government, for example, they, they talk to the British government as, as partners. They talk about the BBC as, uh, as them having a good relationship with the BBC. But the reality is that it's very difficult at the moment to operate there and getting harder all the time.
1: Now, I know you spent some time in and out of Russia during your stint there, but I just wondered when you're talking about the increased hostility, how it 's become a less welcoming place. are there any points where in your career where you started to notice that more profoundly you know before we get to the expulsion, were there any kind of points where like, oh things are changing quite heavily yeah,
0: to twenty fourteen around the time that or after Russia annexed Crimea from Ukraine, that was when things changed really noticeably. So there was this big split in Russia, so that Russia was sort of split into those who supported the annexation and those who didn't, so patriots and and traitors, essentially. There was a lot of that language used. And the relationship and the attitude towards the West changed very dramatically. And so the BBC, for example, is seen in Russia as a very prominent sort of symbol of the West, if you like, and certainly a symbol of Britain. And, yeah, we would find it much more difficult to operate, certainly operating... In Ukraine and in Eastern Ukraine, where the war was going on, then we would find ourselves surrounded by people. We would find ourselves heckled. We would find find ourselves sort of chased by people and, and sort of get verbal abuse, because it felt like Russia at that point was essentially going to war with the West. So that was the beginning, I think, of the the most recent and most steepest decline in the relationship. And it's when I began to feel it personally as well for the first time that you know, whilst up till then I'd, I'd sort of travel in the provinces of Russia with my microphone and and people would ask you know who are you working with and I'd say BBC and they would say oh wow I, I learned English you know from the BBC's learning English programs and they'd talk about the older people would talk about listening to the BBC news during the August coup when some KGB hardliners tried to oust Gorbachev so you know there were very positive associations with the West and with the BBC in particular but it came a time when I, I wouldn't say who I represented. I would never say BBC, and I'd just say, oh, you know, British media, or, or even not that. So yeah, I began to feel it, and things had changed. Uh, and they, you yeah, know, they're, they're still, still pretty, pretty ropey.
1: And just on the BBC, I wondered, is there a lack of understanding from the Russian perspective of a state broadcaster, which is meant to be impartial, as opposed to an independent organisation, or, or is that not so much an issue?
0: Yeah, no, completely. There is no concept of a national broadcaster that is not a state broadcaster, definitely. But also there's no real concept of what free, independent, objective media is, just more broadly. So, you know, forget broadcasting, you know, in any sense. Anyone who these days is not towing the Kremlin line is not seen as independent. They're seen as openly hostile. So it's, you know, there's, there's no history of a free press. There was, around about the time, The Yeltsin years, there was a very actively pro Yeltsin press, for example, you know, the, the oligarchs, the big business people were very heavily involved with the media. But there was a lot of black PR, for example, lots of very active campaigning against certain people. But there was never really this kind of idea of objective journalism at all. And now, certainly, you know, even when I was being kicked out of the country and the foreign ministry spokesperson who was designated to pass on the news when he was telling me I was on my way out, he, he kept talking to me like I was supposed to be an envoy to my government. He kept saying, go and tell the government this or, you know, your government, this and that. And I kept saying, I'm not the government, I'm the BBC. Uh, and he sort of rolled his eyes and he, he said, yeah, 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 you can say what you like, but we know the truth. So it, it's really hard to operate like, you know, in that, in that sort of environment.
1: That's interesting. So you can often be perceived as an arm of the British state just for doing your job as a journalist.
0: Yes, certainly. Yeah. And that's why, you know, I think when it came to me being kicked out, you know, partly it's journalism, partly it's just the relationship with Britain and Russia. So they were looking for a a sort of prominent symbol of Britain, if you like, and, and they went for a journalist.
1: Let's talk about that expulsion, because I mentioned in the introduction, you just referenced it now. You've spoken a little bit there about the conversations, but I wondered if you could just talk us through the events leading up to it. Did it come as a surprise when did you first get wind of the fact that you were effectively going to be stopped from doing a job you'd done for decades? Well, I never expected what happened, definitely, but
0: I, I kind of knew something was up. Um, I mean, I think my days in Moscow were, were numbered. Around about a year ago, I started getting short term visas and nobody would tell me why. In fact, at one point they they sort of claimed it was to do with Covid, which didn't make any sense because that would probably mean they'd give me a two year visa to give them less work to do and, and, you know, fewer people in the office. But I had three month visas and then the last visa that I was given was only for two months, which was definitely a bad sign. And at one point, there was a call from the foreign ministry to the person who does our visas in in our BBC office, and they said, oh, this is the last visa she's going to get. It's not going to be renewed after that. And then she called back and she was in tears and it was all supposedly a mistake. And I started thinking, OK, is that some kind of weird sort of supposed to psych me out and kind of make me really nervous and, and kind of on edge and maybe maybe theoretically more cautious in my journalism or actually... Was it a mistake? And, and I'm going to be fine. And I can carry on working after the end of August. And I sort of forgot about it, although not entirely, obviously. And then when I was coming back from Belarus, then I was stopped at the border. And it wasn't the shock wasn't so much that I wasn't going to be allowed to continue working in Russia. The shock was that they weren't going to even let me back into Moscow. And they were deporting me, not just as a person, but as a, as a national security threat. And, and that part I, I Definitely didn't see coming, and and I couldn't believe it. I was I was absolutely horrified. Um, I'm really quite upset at the border because, well, apart from the fact I'd slept for an hour the night before because I'd been editing the ten o'clock news and we we just questioned Alexander Lukashenko about torturing his opponents. Um, so that was quite a tough assignment. So it was you know I didn't come into being deported in the best frame of mind. But yeah, it was it was just such a massive blow to think that after all these years. I was being labelled some kind of enemy and I wasn't going to be even allowed into, into Moscow to pack up my bags, to collect my husband, to pick up the dog, to say goodbye to all my friends, to do all the stories I wanted to do. You know, so many things that were going through my, my head at the moment when this, this man was just standing in front of me with a piece of paper and saying, he kept saying, Sarah Elizabeth, which is not something I'm often referred to as. You know, you are, you're not entering Russia, you're banned for life. This is an order of the FSB, you know, you're off, you're being deported.
1: Now, I'm not sure if listeners will be able to hear it, but there has been a dog in the background and I hope that's a sign that your dog did make it over from Moscow. She and did, she did. At the time you were told this, what goes through your mind? Do you worry about your husband who's, who's still in Russia, your, you know, your friends in the sense that they could be intimidated or, or do you think it's very specifically to do with you? No, I, I did worry. I did worry not just about my husband, I also worried about the dog, weirdly. I I did
0: because at that point it was such a shock and and things had taken such a sort of dark turn that I, I didn't actually know what might happen next. And I mean, now sitting back in the UK and sort of thinking through it, maybe my worst fears were just too dark. But by the same token, I've spent a lot of time in Russia reporting on some pretty dark things. And so even though now rationally I could shrug some of it off and say I was just in a kind of nervy state of of mind. On the other hand, you know, as I say, Russia does some pretty dark things. And so I was worried. I was worried for what might happen to my husband, what might happen to my dog if I left her there because we were having trouble getting her out with us. And I was worried about what it meant for me because eventually they did let me back into Moscow and I spent three weeks there sort of gathering up my stuff. But it was horrible. I was scared. And it sounds a bit bonkers now, but I I was
1: scared. And... Why do you think you were, we've spoken about how it was political, but I just wondered, you know, there are journalists still in Russia. I think you have a BBC colleague who's still there. Do you think there's any specific stories you've done, any of the way you've operated? You mentioned, obviously, you questioned Lukashenko on sanctions in Belarus. Is there anything that you think made you more of a target? No,
0: I mean, straight away after when the news came out, publicly everyone was linking it to the Lukashenko Exchange because I'd asked him about torture. I'd specifically said, you know, people have been tortured here. Peaceful protesters have been tortured and arrested in the hundreds. And, you know, I questioned his legitimacy then to be president. And his entire gang of, of loyal uh, acolytes turned on me. And I got harangued and blamed for everything from the war in Iraq to goodness knows what else. <laughs> it, was, it was all my fault. So so publicly, certainly, and on social media, lots and lots of people were saying, wow, you know, two days later, she's been kicked out of Russia. That's not a chance thing, you know, and there was lots of stuff saying, oh, you're so brave, you're so brave. And I was thinking, hold on a minute, this is a bit bonkers. First of all, it happened a few hours later. And secondly, I was just asking him a question, you know. But I think perhaps what it is, is being targeted for the kind of work that we all do i don't think this is necessarily me as a specific you know kind of journalist or you know for any specific stories i've done although i must say that i don't think the russian authorities particularly like the kind of stories that i do but i think they just don't really like journalists at the moment they don't like people who speak the language can talk to people directly ask them questions directly can challenge senior officials directly they don't really want them wandering around the country if they can avoid it so they want to pretend that they are open to all of that and they keep saying they're open to all of that and yet they just do completely the opposite by kicking me out so you know this is happening at a specific time in Russia a time when there is a massive clampdown on independent Russian journalists in particular so I think that context isn't accidental although you know for, for fairness sake I have to say the official Russian line is that I'm being kicked out because a Russian journalist in the UK was denied leave to remain a couple of years ago. There was no fuss at the time, though. Nobody ever knew his name. The news agency didn't say anything at the time. And two years later, apparently, that's why I'm being targeted now.
1: On Belarus, I wondered, in terms of, I suppose how Russia is viewed by the West, European politics, do you think the Russia-Belarus relationship has meant there is more scrutiny now than there used to be? And if so, what effect is that having?
0: I mean, certainly I think the protests and and what happened in Belarus, particularly the the crackdown against the protests, has has made people wake up a a lot more to, to what's happening there, definitely. But I think, you know, when it comes to Russia, there's a long list of stuff that, you know, back to... Litvinenko's poisoning, but then, of course, the Salisbury poisonings, MH17 being downed, Navalny, Alexei Navalny then being poisoned in Russia, but obviously then shipped out to to Germany for treatment. You know, so many things that I think mean that what Russia does matters to the rest of the world. And the same goes for Belarus. I mean, in Belarus, of course, you know, Lukashenko managed to turn a plane around and bring it down to to arrest a, a dissident. So that was a Ryanair flight, you know. So, again, Belarus matters to the rest of the world you know these are countries that don't operate in isolation they have they carry out actions which have consequences for all of us and that's why they matter and it's why to me it's so galling to be cut off now from those countries and cut off from reporting those countries because it's been such a massive part of my life for so many years and and I see why those countries matter you know I've devoted such a lot of time and effort to understanding those countries and and reporting on them that it yeah It hurts not to be able to do it anymore.
1: And there's long been hostility towards Russia, lots of condemnation from figures in the West. But I think as we see Russia's influence, appear in more countries, spread out, in a sense, it becomes harder, I think, for some people to look the other way. Yeah,
0: I mean, Russia and Belarus have been very, very close for a long time, of course. And and Lukashenko has flipped back between the EU and Russia in terms of who his key backers and supporters are, you know, who he looks to for for cash, basically. But now he's leaning very, very heavily on Russia. And and so, you know, that relationship has become much more entrenched. But I think, you know, what was interesting in Belarus, and, and I think, probably this is why so many difficult things are happening in Russia right now, is that those protests, nobody saw them coming in Belarus. It was, and it has been for for so many years, a dictatorship, basically. The freedoms there have been so limited. And so to have so many people turn against the president and to pour out onto the streets like they did, and to be led by such an unusual character, you know, uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, she describes herself as a housewife, you know, to have her at the forefront of these protests, I think, you know, that not only kind of shook Belarus, it, it really shook the Kremlin, too. And I think, you know, that's why we've seen such a massive crackdown in Russia. And that's why everything that's happened since last August, when those protests took place in Belarus, has happened in Russia. So, yeah, it's been a, a, a kind of rollercoaster time in so many ways. And, and, you know, I feel like I've kind of been swept up in it, but it's much, much bigger. You know, there's huge stuff going on in Russia now.
1: And go back to you. You mentioned there how painful it is to to ultimately be pushed out of a country which you've given a lot of your life to. You haven't actually lived in the UK for a particularly long time if you think about your career since you started this. Is it strange being sent back to the UK? And and what does that mean for you? Do you do you miss life in Russia? What do you miss most?
0: I think it's weird because I don't feel like I've come back to the UK because I've not lived here for twenty-one years. So. I don't want to be here, (laughs) not for any length of time. Nothing against Britain, but, you know, I'm a foreign correspondent, so I want to be abroad. And, and, you know, my whole life has been sort of focused on, or my education and my work life has been focused on being abroad and and reporting back to the UK. So it is weird being in the UK. I do feel a little bit kind of, not alien here, but certainly a kind of slightly not, not quite comfortable in the UK. And I really miss the work and the life that I had in Russia and my friends, of course, but also just, just this sense that there's so much more there that I wanted to do and so much more that I wanted to, to report on. And just, you know, if it had been a ban for a few years, then fine, but it's a ban for life. And that's, I think that's what kind of hits me the hardest, just this idea that I, I can't go back because I have loads of ambitions still, you know, to do with Russia and Russian. Yeah, to have that taken away is is, is bad, especially now when it, it seems more important than ever. You know, we're going to twenty twenty four when Putin is uh, theoretically could stand again, or it could be a real crunch time in terms of Russian politics. And you know, to feel that I might be a, a distant spectator to all of that is pretty pretty rubbish.
1: And in terms of your role now, are you going to keep focusing on Russia? but reporting from the UK? Or do you think you'll look to potentially... You mentioned, obviously, your foreign correspondent to go to another country to to work from.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's all a bit up in the air. It's actually, you know, it seems like it happened ages ago, but it's only, you know, a a really short time ago. And obviously we had quarantine and all the rest of it. But it's hard because the foreign ministry official who kicked me out or who delivered the message, he very helpfully in the middle of our long conversation, said to me, well, you know, I don't know what you're moaning about, Sarah, just go to Britain and, and report on Russia from there. You know, you can read the news on the internet and you can report it from there. And I just looked at him. I was like, yeah, thanks. But, you know, that's what they would like. They would love everyone to be outside as far as possible from from the actual information, the actual sources, and, and to be able to sort of slightly discredit everybody as well. So... I'm kind of torn because I, I, I felt like I wanted to just cut all my ties with Russia when I left and, and, you know, stop reporting the story because it would be just too hard for me to do that. But now I, I kind of am still sort of clinging to it, thinking, you know, that actually there's so much that Russia is doing outside of Russia that maybe, you know, maybe somebody needs to tell a bit more about those stories.
1: And then just finally on that, I wondered, this trend we're seeing now in Russia, but also other countries sort of kicking out people, pushing people out... Do you fear that we're heading to a place where we're just going to know a lot less about other countries um, if we do have this closed attitude to see more of Yeah,
0: it? and I think that would be really sad. So, you know, that's why I think, for example, however much, you know, Russian journalists operating in the UK may not be liked by the authorities here or by their colleagues or whatever, let them do their worst. You know, journalists are journalists. There are different kinds of journalists operating in every country. I think they should just be allowed to operate, you know, so long as they're reporting, so long as they're staying within you know, the the normal guidelines and ethics of journalism, then I just think that freedom to report is a really fundamental principle. And, you know, to have that taken away from me makes it feel even sharper, you know, and to see what's happening, I think more, much, much more importantly, what's happening in Russia now to independent journalists who are being closed down, forced into exile, you know, having all sorts of of, of dreadful experiences now as the Russian government tries to close down freedom of speech. I think that just underlines how important it is. So, does
1: that, yeah. mean, does that mean more of a tolerance of things like Russia today then, do you think, from the UK side?
0: Well, they are tolerated, aren't they? They operate here. You know, they face fines from Ofcom the same as anyone else. But they work here. They operate as anyone else.
1: And just the last question we ask everyone when they do this podcast, what is the worst advice you've ever been given? It might be something during your time out in the field, reporting abroad, or it could be something back from home when you were starting out?
0: Oh, I thought of all sorts of earnest answers. But then I was thinking, actually, the one thing that people always told me not to do in this job, (laughs) given my itinerant lifestyle, was get a dog. And that was really bad advice. (laughs) We now have a a spaniel and she's amazing. And actually, although she made life really complicated, being forced out of Russia with a spaniel, it's actually the one thing that's kept me sane throughout it. (laughs) So yeah, everyone get a dog. Well, actually don't, don't.